Well, we're over in uh, chapter 9, verse 32 of the book of Acts. Uh, we've come a long way here uh, now, so uh, we're, we're moving forward. And one of the things uh, uh, that we have to know, one of the things that we have to know is that, God bless you, is that at the end of Jesus' life uh, here on earth, as he was ascending back uh, to heaven, he gave his disciples a clear commission. And uh, you could turn uh, to the end of one of the Gospels, maybe Matthew, and you could see and understand that they were to, you know, uh, go and preach the word, the, uh, the forgiveness of sins. In fact, Jesus spoke and said, all authority in uh, Matthew 28 has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. That's what we're to do. That's what they were to do. Not just share the Gospels, but bring people along. Make lifelong followers and learners. Ones that you would share the Gospel with, win them to Christ. Of course, he does all the winning. He just uses us. Build them up in Christ and send them out in Christ to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And it says here, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Right? You know this. And what's interesting is in Luke... As Jesus is ascending and, uh, you know, going back to heaven, he says to them this, Thus, it is, thus is it, <laughs> it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Listen now, listen. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name. You don't know what to share with somebody? There you go. Pretty simple. How about this? Share this. Repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you're witness of these things. And now watch. Listen. Here we go. We get the link with Acts. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. In order for his disciples, followers of Christ... To do what he's called them to do. These already indwelt with the Holy Spirit followers were now to receive this coming upon ministry of the Holy Spirit for power. What? So that they could display gifts and be, uh, you know, showy and run around? No, not at all. So that they could be empowered to change the world, to preach the gospel, to have this gentle, loving, incomprehensible to the world boldness. In a pluralistic society where there were lots of different ideas about who God was or is, and these people were to have the Holy Spirit uh, to do it. And so they go to Jerusalem and they wait. Watch this, and in Acts chapter 1, we see the link again. Verse 4, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. There's the link between Luke, as Jesus ascends, and now they're being obedient and they're waiting in Jerusalem because they are to wait for this promise. God always delivers on his promises. That's why it's important that you know the promises, so that you can stand on the promises, so that you could pray the promises, so you can live in the promises, so you can walk in the promises. That's what God's called us to do. And here's the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me, verse 5, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, 
Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I know you're going to, they, they knew that he was going to restore the kingdom. And he's like, time out. You're thinking way ahead. We got still some more work to do here. When I come back, yes, that's the ultimate restoration, but now you've got work to do. So here's what I want you to do. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the season which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And in Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit come upon his disciples, his followers, and now we've been seeing how God orchestrated the gospel to go out in Jerusalem. That's what we've been primarily thinking about and studying here from Acts chapter 2 through Acts chapter 8, although we did get a little hint of the gospel going up into Samaria. Do you remember that? And so we are seeing um, uh, this spread of the gospel. Now, what's interesting about Acts chapter 9 and then into Acts chapter 10, remember, they couldn't write down everything in the book of Acts. Remember, Luke in his own gospel said, if I I did that, (laughs) we'd have piles of books and we couldn't do that. So the Holy Spirit gives certain things. And so what I'm telling you now is Acts chapter 9 and into chapter 10, we think, scholars think, is somewhere between five to ten years after the beginning of the book of Acts. And they can't really agree. Most people believe it's closer to 10, but you be a Berean and think about it. And the reason I tell you that is, look, the gospel is still sort of in the area of uh, Israel, but God wants it to get out. And now we're going to see the door come wide open here. You get it? That's where we are. And before we get there, through a man named Cornelius and a follower of Christ who was in his inner circle called Peter in chapter 10, we have this strange like interlude. Although if you think about it, it's not really strange. There's this little interlude in chapters not, or chapter 9, 32 to the end of the chapter. You're, you're sitting here and you're reading about and thinking about Saul or Paul and his conversion on the road to Damascus. That's what chapter 9 is all about. And at the end of it, we're told that Paul gets tucked up. Do we have the map? And I don't even know if it's on the map, but if it's not, I'll sort of point it out. Uh, Paul gets tucked up into his former hometown, a place called Tarsus. And Tarsus is up in southern Turkey, up in the, um, uh, the north, yeah, we don't have it, but that's okay. It's my fault. If you keep going, this goes in an oval. The, the, um, the ocean goes in an oval, or the sea goes in an oval, and Paul is up at the northern part of the sea. He's tucked away there, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit directs Luke to tell us a story about these two healings. You're like, where did this come from? Why now? Well, you have to realize this uh, 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 story, this this book of Acts, was written for a purpose. And here comes the purpose. Peter shows up. Look in verse 32 of chapter 9. After we see that Saul is converted, it says, It come to pass as Peter went through all parts of the country. He goes through all parts of the country. He's a man of action. Do you see that? I mean, you, you got this guy who was a fisherman and apparently was in with James and John and had a, a good fishing business. He would have been a man of action. And there's this thing in the Christian life, isn't there, where there's a time to wait upon the Lord. That's good. But there's also a time that we can get uh, paralysis by analysis. 
You know what I'm talking about? Christians who say, well, I'll wait till this happens and that happens and this happens and this thing happens. And then maybe I'll think about launching out in that ministry. Not Peter. And of course, sometimes Peter, that got him in trouble. But here it says he goes all throughout the country. And we have this story where he heals a man and then he brings a lady named Dorcas. I got a little advice for you. Don't name your daughter Dorcas. Of all the things to name your daughter, don't name her Dorcas. But of course, she had another name. That was Tabitha or Tabitha. I don't know how to say it. You guys will, you correct me when I'm done. But I know Tabitha, and we'll just leave it at that. So let me, let me give you a little verse or a couple verses from the New Testament, one of the Gospels. It's actually contained in two Gospels. Matthew 11, verses 2 through 6. I want you to remember this as we start through what Peter and, um, uh, or Peter's about ready to do. Now, when John, while imprisoned, Matthew 11, verse 2, John the Baptist, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ. We're going to need that uh, again here in a minute, that map. But anyway, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? And I want you to catch this now. Really examine this. Jesus, in the Gospels, answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. Folks, that's a direct reference to Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 6. Isaiah, written 800 years or so prior to the time of Christ, makes a prophet, uh, uh, has a prophecy that says that the Messiah's kingdom, that the mark of the Messiah and his kingdom is that the lame are going to walk, the lepers will be cleansed, and the deaf will hear. And then watch this. Jesus says this in Matthew 11. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So here's what we have in that statement in Matthew 11. We have a direct reference to Isaiah 35, that when you see the one who can heal the lame, know that the kingdom of God is coming upon you. What else does he say? When you see the one who raises the dead, know that the kingdom of God and the Messiah are here. When you see the one who speaks out the gospel, and that's a direct reference to Isaiah 61, another prophecy that the spirit of the Lord is upon the Messiah because the Lord has anointed him to bring good news to the afflicted. Is everybody tracking with me? In the gospels, we're not in the gospels right now, we're in the book of Acts. In the gospels, Jesus said, you're gonna know I'm the Messiah because I'm going to do these things. And wouldn't you agree that Jesus did all those things? Amen? Everybody with me? Including the fulfillment of Isaiah 35, Isaiah 61. By the way, Jesus throws in that they're in Matthew 11 that the dead will be raised, which really isn't the prophecy there, uh, but there's some other indications in the Old Testament. And, of course, we know from Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus is the firstfruits of resurrection. And if he's the first, guess what? There's more coming behind him, and that's you and me and us. Okay, are you understanding what I'm saying? The reason I'm telling you this is, is because Peter is ready to embark upon a ministry to the Gentiles. And so far from Acts 2 through Acts 8, it's been mostly a ministry to the Jews. So the writer of Acts, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sort of resets and tells us what the kingdom of God is going to look like when people operate in the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of Christ. Everybody with me? Because when I read this, I go, why in the world is there Aeneas healed and Dorcas restored to life in the middle of Paul's conversion? I'm not getting this. 
And the reason is, is because they're resetting to tell you the Jesus who lives in these men and women is going to bring the kingdom of God to Gentiles. Now you sitting out there are like, what's the big deal? Mainly you say that because you are a Gentile. You're non-Jewish. But if you lived at this time, this was staggering. This was shocking. Here's why. Because the people of Israel, all those years ago, when they received the law and the dietary laws and the circumcision covenant, all those things, they started to think to themselves, well, God has said we're the chosen people. And that was, they were chosen so that the love of God could be uh, shown to all the nations. You can go back and read Genesis 12 when God talks to Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless your family and it, because I'm going to bless the whole world from your family. Get it? So it wasn't just for Israel. It was for the whole world. But they started to get this legalistic cocky, spiritually superior attitude in which, listen folks, they wouldn't even associate with a Gentile. In fact, in some of the rabbinical writings, not all, in some of the rabbinical writings, I said to you, or this to you, maybe last week or maybe on Wednesday, that the Jewish people would say a prayer in the mornings that I'm glad I'm not several things and one of them was a Gentile. And that they believed that the reason Gentiles existed as they got into this superior attitude was to stoke the fires of hell. Wow, really compassionate, huh? Now with that backdrop, watch this. It came to pass as Peter went all throughout the parts of the country, or went through all parts of the country, that he came down to the saints, can we see the map, who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man. We might need the other one. That's the Tarsus one. There's Tarsus. He, Paul's tucked away there. Thank you. But now, if you go to uh, uh, Jerusalem right here, you can see Lydda up to the uh, top left, and then Joppa. Those are the two things, two cities I want you to see, as well as this city up here called Caesarea. Notice, folks, that Joppa, or Jaffa, is on the beach. Notice that Caesarea or Caesarea Maritime, or as it's called there, Strato's Tower, is on the beach. Who here likes the beach? Well, Romans like the beach too. And that Caesarea was the Roman capital there in Judea. But it came to pass, look, Peter goes, and he goes to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. How could there have been saints in Lydda? By the way, if you go to Israel, you land actually in Lydda. The Ben-Gurion airport is in Lydda, so you've been there if you've been to Israel. Uh, but why were there saints in Lydda? Because you remember uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. It says after Philip did his stuff with the Ethiopian eunuch, he started making his way up the coast. So possibly it could be that these were the results of Philip doing lots of his ministry. Whatever, they go to Lydda. And there he finds a certain man named Aeneas. We don't know much about this guy. The only other Aeneas I ever heard was a defensive back for the Arizona Cardinals, but I'm weird like that. But anyway, a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And uh, uh, then he arose immediately so uh, all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Do you remember that time in the Gospels? Just bear with me. I know I jump around. But hopefully this has a point. Do you remember that time in the Gospels when Jesus says to his disciples, Hey guys, gals, you, you know that a disciple isn't greater than the teacher, right? Remember that verse? You know, at the end of that verse, and he, he says this, and he goes, and my disciples are going to look like me. You can go back and read it. Jesus says that, okay? And when you read this, watch this. This isn't Jesus here on the earth doing this healing. This is Peter, but in the power of Jesus. And Peter says to this guy who's been paralyzed, doesn't this sound like the pool of Bethesda? Do you remember the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5? 
I think it's five. When Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda, there's a whole bunch of sick, uh, maimed, uh, lame people. Jesus sees one and says, what does he say to him? He says, rise, take up your mat. And Right? Do you remember that? And you're saying to yourself when Jesus says it, what? I mean, this guy's been paralyzed forever. I mean, and, and it, listen, listen, there's just this thing when your faith is turned on just as small as a mustard seed. And I have to believe that the paralyzed guy in the pool of Bethesda had mustard seed faith. Praise the Lord. But soon as he, uh, Jesus said, rise, take up your bed and walk, soon as he agreed with that statement, boom, that happened. He got up and he walked. You remember that? And here, Peter, in the power of Jesus, it's as if Jesus is there, and he is. He's working in and through Peter. And Peter's doing it just like his master because Jesus said, when you surrender your life to me, one of the things that's going to happen for you as your sins are forgiven is you're going to, be, you're going to look like me. You're going to become more and more Christ-like. Sanctification, right? Well, so you see that. And that's a reference to the Isaiah 35 passage, that this is what the Messiah would do. And then, here we go, Dorcas. What a name. Don't do it. At Joppa, don't name your kid Dorcas, please. At Joppa, there's a certain disciple named, I think it's Tabitha. Is it Tabitha? You guys tell me. Which is translated Dorcas. Now, I want you to notice something about this woman. She was full of good works and charitable deeds. Charitable deeds means she gave alms meant money. She was a charitable giver, monetarily, which some people lead some people to believe that Dorcas, Tabitha, was not only an amazing Proverbs 31 woman who worked with her hands, you'll see that in a minute, but she gave money to the people that the Lord laid on her heart. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room, and that's what they did. They would wash the body and lay her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, oh, Lydda was near Joppa. You remember that? Yes, there you go. Lydda was near Joppa. The disciples had heard that Peter was there. They sent two men to him. Doesn't this sound familiar? Remember when the centurion's kid was dying, and there was a lady who came with a blood flow for several years. And when I read the story, I'm like, oh, I'm so, you know, I feel compassion for the lady with the blood flow, but she's got to get this thing over with. Get healed so she, that Jesus can get to the kid. Remember that story? Boy, doesn't this sound familiar? It's because Jesus works in and through his people. And since, and remember, they, they sent for him and the Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there. They sent two men to him, imploring him, don't delay. Then Peter arose and went with him. And time out here, time out. You see this about Peter? Here this guy is. He is a powerful, so to speak, disciple. I mean, he's one of the inner crew. I mean, he's the person God chose to give that first sermon after the Holy Spirit fell, and several thousand people gave their lives to Christ. Remember this in the beginning of the book of Acts? There would be a temptation, would there not, especially in today's age. Hey, I'm the big gun. You, I, you send me when there's lots of people. There's none of that. Peter says, oh, yes, you need a lady. Oh, she's, she's dying. Oh, yes, I'll make myself available. And that's what servants do to the best of their ability. If they can do it, they do it. They see a need and they meet the need. So Lydda was near Joppa. They go, Peter rose and went with them. He made himself available. And when he had come, they brought him to the upper room and all the widows, widows stood by him weeping. Apparently she ministered to widows. What does James tell us is pure and undefiled? Is it James? But anyway, the Bible in the New Testament tells us that what's pure and undefiled religion is to take care of widows and orphans. And here this wonderful lady, this amazing lady who had this unbelievable godly reputation dies. And uh, these people go and send for him. And Peter rises and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with him. 
I have a quote about Dorcas. Can we put that up? Maybe. I sprung this on them at the last minute, so maybe we can or... Oh, wow. Listen to this. How about this quote? When a Christian lady gives herself to real work for those who are in trouble, and by the way, I'd say lady or man, there springs up a rare new unconscious beauty, even in her features, which spreads over her whole life like sweet, bright sunshine. Dorcas was full of good works and not of good wishes alone. So her needle was as... As, as, <laughs> we are, oh, we're getting there. Here, I'll read you the rest. Her needle was as noble as Moses' rod. I'll read you the rest. Listen, listen, just listen to this now if it's not up there. So her needle was as noble as Moses' rod or David's sling or Shamgar's ox goad, for it was her answer to the Lord's question in Exodus 4.2. You can look that up later. All these works were done not by the Dorcas Society of Joppa, but by Dorcas, C.S. Robinson tells us. Why does it say that? Because a whole bunch of these Dorcas societies raised up throughout the Middle East and even here in America. And what this writer here is telling you is God uses normal people with their normal talents. Are you a mechanic? <laughs> well, God's going to use you, and it's going to be just as noble as David's sling. Are you a... Now, lawyers, that's tough. I don't think they can use lawyers, but I'm a lawyer, so relax, okay? But anyway, but what are you? Are you an engineer? Are you a housewife? Are you a, 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 an administrator? What are you? Do, do you, do you? Are you a plumber? Are you an electrician? God can use any of this, see, for his glory, if you'll just give it over to him. And Dorcas did it. What's fascinating about this is they call, and I want you to see something. Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. Turn with me, just to make my point, over to Mark chapter 5. Go over to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, verse 38. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult, and those who wept and wailed loudly. Verse 39. Then when he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child isn't dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had, look at this, when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was laying. Then he took the hand, the child by the hand and said to her, Not Tabitha. I don't even know how to say it. So, Tell me after, okay? But Talitha, maybe. Kumai, which is translated little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl rose and walked, for she was 12 years of age. And they were overcome with great amazement. Now turn back with me to the story of Dorcas, verse 40, chapter 9. But Peter put them all out. <laughs> He's just living out the life of Jesus. Are you catching this? He's doing what he knows and what he's been taught and what, it's so beautiful. He's following Jesus. He's asking Jesus to do the work. Jesus had put the people out. Peter puts the people out, prays. He knows he needs prayer. And he turns to the body and he doesn't say Talitha, but he says Tabitha or Tabitha, I don't know. Arise. Oh. What was that? Whoever that was, we were going to Jerusalem, and that's five bucks in the jar for us. <laughs> Talitha, Talitha, or Tabitha, arise, and she opens her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up, and we called the saints and widows. What do saints mean, or who are the saints? The saints are any of us who are in Christ, who are set apart and holy ones because of the righteousness of God through Jesus. We don't have to do a miracle after we're dead. We don't, etc., etc., you know, or whatever, before we're dead, or you know, you know what I'm talking about. 
You're saints. We're all saints. And the widows, he presents her alive. Verse 42, and it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he, uh, so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa. Watch, this is unbelievable with Simon the tanner. Now what's a tanner? A taxidermist guy, guy who has skins around, animal skins. Now remember, Hey, we, anyway, animal skins. I mean, animal skins. And what do you know about animal skins, especially back then when they were drying outside or in the sun or near your house? They stunk. In fact, some of the extra biblical, <laughs> or, or excuse me, rabbinical writings say that uh, you didn't even ever want to go to a tanner's house because they smelled so bad and the whole house smelled so bad. But why is that important? It's because Peter is getting to this place where he's about ready to be taught about how the Jewish traditions, ceremonies, and even days will become less and less important to him as he just follows the Lord. And here we see he goes into, uh, or he's staying in a house where there's dead animals. That was a big no-no for the ceremonial laws of the Jews. You catch that? Now, here's one other thing. Remember, Joppa, or Jaffa as it's known today, was the port city from which uh, Jonah tried to flee from the Lord. Here, God does an amazing thing. Who, who was Jonah supposed to minister to? Ninevites, who were enemies of the Lord. Were they, were they Jews or Gentiles? They were Gentiles. And now God is going to use Joppa, or he is using Joppa, with another city, Caesarea, in order to fling open the door of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wow. Is the Bible inspired or what? So you get here in there, uh, verse 10, and there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. Now you need to know about Caesarea. First of all, I do want to tell you that the first two places in our trip to Israel... We get off the plane, we get in the bus, and we immediately go to Joppa. And you can see Joppa, and you go there, and we actually go to Simon the Tanner's house. Uh, you really don't go in or anything, but it's right on the water. Go down this little cobblestone street, and it's back there. Simon the Tanner's house. And then after we're done looking around in Joppa, we get in the bus and go about 30 miles up the coast to a place called Caesarea. Now there's two Caesareas that you're gonna visit while you're in Israel. One is the one that we're talking about today. It's called Caesarea Maritime. And Caesarea Maritime is there on the coast. There's another one called Caesarea Philippi where uh, Peter gives his confession. That's way north, even north of the Sea of Galilee. But the reason I'm telling you this is Caesarea Maritime is an amazing site to go see. It's actually a national park, and it has all the Roman stuff left over. I mean, you see everything. A hippodrome. Anybody know what a hippodrome is? What? Somebody's raising your hand. Horse race. You see the horse track there. You have a coliseum there. You actually sit in the coliseum, and you can uh, sing in there and pray in there and talk in there. You can walk in and through the Colosseum. It's right on the beach. You have a hippodrome. You see the foundations still in the water. Oh, there it is. How about this? There it is. And uh, I don't know if I sent this to him, but there's a foundation in the water of Herod's palace. Herod's palace was there. And I don't know if you know this, but you know what? One of the great hotly debated things Okay, stop right there. One of the hotly debated things of the Bible for a long time is they had no evidence that Pontius Pilate ever lived. And they just thought, uh, critics of the Bible said, well, it's a farce. I mean, he's not found in history until I think the 1800s, but don't quote me on that. They found this stone, which has a writing that talks about who Pontius Pilate was or is. And so the Bible uh, proved itself again, or archaeology helped prove the Bible again. Well, you see that. And the reason I'm telling you all this is this was the Roman um, uh, capital of the area of Judea. And the Romans and the Herods were like this. Herod came from Edom, Edomites. 
Esau. And you go there, and this is a beautiful place, and Paul is eventually going to be kept there. You remember this? In Caesarea. And I just wanted you to know that I don't know if you're like me, but when I used to read the Bible, I'd go, why are there Romans in here? I had zero idea. But the reason you have Romans in there is because Rome is dominating the ancient world, and they set up shop in Caesarea, and to that place, God brings the gospel. I mean, how wise is God? Much wiser than us. We'd probably go and look and say, hey, they're the enemies. Let's don't go up there. We might get hurt. God says, oh, what an opportunity. Let's share the gospel with the Romans because the Romans are going to go back to Rome. And the gospel's going to spread like wildfire, right? So you get it and you come to this chapter and you got this guy named Cornelius and he's in Caesarea and now you know why. And he's part of the army. He's part a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. This was a special regiment and this meant that Cornelius was like a staff sergeant in the Marines. He was a ruler over a hundred men and a hundred men times six of these units made up a a cohort (laughs) and then that made 600 and then I can't do math very well, but I think 10 of those 600 then would make a legion. Remember, there's references to legion. A legion is 6,000. Is that my math right? Okay. But this is the guy on the low level, not the low level, but he's the, he's the one that's like the backbone of the military. And he's devout, it says. A devout man and one who feared God with all his household and who gave arms generously to the people and prayed to God. Do you know this, that there's several places in the New Testament where we see Jewish, or excuse me, uh, Gentile people who are called God-fearers. They see the Jewish religion and they go, wow. Remember, Rome is pluralistic, pantheistic. They believe in many gods. You know all that. But here's something they've watched and they've known that something is happening with the Jewish religion and he has this something inside of him. We know that's the Holy Spirit that calls him to want to live a good life and to fear God and to give money, give alms, and to pray. Now i got to take a time out right here. I know, I'm jumping around. But listen, which tells me you can't just leave people who live a great moralistic life, but don't believe in Jesus, you can't leave them alone. Some people might be tempted to say, well, come on. I mean, they went to a nice home, or they have a nice home, they went to a nice college, they have a wonderful job, they're responsible citizens, and they do morally good things. And this story takes that and wipes it off the map. Because here's one of those moralistic, good, devout, praying people that Jesus goes to any length, great lengths, to say. In fact, it's inappropriate and mean not to share the gospel with them. You see that? So here, God says, or he prayed to God in about, in about the ninth hour, that's about 3 p.m., that's one of the times that the Jews would pray, even though this guy isn't Jewish, he's a God-fearer, he sees a vision, an angel of God, coming and saying to him, Cornelius, God sends an angel. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? Small l. So he said to him, your prayers and your alms has come up for a memorial before God. Now I'm just going to give you, and I'm not going to give you the answer. Does God hear the prayers of unsaved people? Well, there's some people who say no. Read that story. So here he's being sincere with God. If you seek God diligently, he's a rewarder, right? He'll reveal himself. So your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial and send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He doesn't even know a guy named Peter. You're 35 miles away. He doesn't even know about this guy. This man, Peter, is lodging with a tanner. 
No big deal to him. Okay, a taxidermy guy. Okay, well, all right, whatever. Whose house is by the sea. He'll tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a soldier from among those who waited on him continually. This guy was in the privilege, right? Was among the privilege. So when he had explained all these things, he sent them to Joppa. Now you know, from Caesarea to Joppa, 35 miles. You get it? Watch this. This is beautiful. At the same time God is working on Cornelius and his heart, God starts to prepare Peter's heart. So the next day, as they went on their journey and drew near to the city, Peter goes up onto the housetop to pray in about the sixth hour, around noon. Now, in their culture, housetop going up was not that big a deal. Be big deal for us. Not a big deal for them because theirs was flat roofs and like patio-like. So they often went up there. And then he became very hungry. You ever caught that in the story? God used what was going on in Peter's life. He was hungry. Isn't that fascinating? And so God, uh, and he wanted to eat. So while he was made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners or sail, sheet or sail, descending and letting down to the earth. And in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. Now, you know this, right? There was the law of God, but watch this, catch this. This is important for the story. But there were also things that God did for Israel or asked Israel to do, that's a better way of saying it, so that Israel would be set apart from the rest of the world. What am I talking about? Well, one of them was dietary laws. Here's another one circumcision. Here's another one, depending on what you believe, but here's another one. Sabbath, the Sabbath day. That makes you set apart. You do things differently. And so you know the dietary laws, or at least you could look them up in your favorite book, like my favorite book, Leviticus. In Leviticus 11, it gives you lots of the dietary laws. And these Jews adhered to it. And they often said you were either clean or unclean. You were common or uncommon, depending on how well you kept those dietary laws. Everybody with me? And so watch, there was no prohibition in any of God's laws or anything like that from a Jewish person going into a Gentile home. You know that, right? But if they did, guess what would immediately be presented to them? And it'd be a very difficult conversation. Hey, you want a cheeseburger? I'm going to, I'm firing up the grill out back. Uh, you know, I know Gertrude invited you over and, uh, I'm happy to grill and, uh, I'm going to make, uh, bacon burgers. You're cool with that. And they would immediately, they would be, oh my, that's unclean. Do you see? And so they got to this place where they became very, or at least a lot of them, spiritually superior. We're not going over to the Gentile house. No way. Understand what I'm saying. So. Peter sees this sheet and all these things are on them. And a voice comes to him and says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And to a Jew, he goes, wait a second. No, no, Lord, not so. By the way, if you're a Christian, that'll never come out of your mouth or shouldn't. I mean, how can you call the Lord, Lord? And when he gives you a directive, say no, but don't you love Peter? Peter does just exactly what we do. I want you to go and ask for forgiveness from that person. Not so, Lord. I want you to bury that grudge with that family member you've been holding for all these years. Not me, Lord. You must be talking to somebody else. I want you to bless your enemy. Nah, I know now I know you're not talking to me. We do the same thing as Peter. Not so, Lord. And yet the Lord was calling him to that. I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Boy, you're starting to hear the words of legalism. I would never. Watch that movie. I mean, you, you, you could be talking about, you know, I could only imagine or something. I don't know. I watched the Ten Commandments last night, but my goodness, it's four and a half hours, folks. Could only stay there for a little bit. But anyway, or I would never. And the implication I would never is I would never and neither should you. 
when it's not commanded in the law. You better watch it when you get to that place. And Peter needed to watch it. And so while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had been seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house. And they stood before the gate and they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was there. And Peter thought about the vision, or while Peter thought about the vision, the spirit said to him, hey, the people are downstairs knocking at your door. (laughs) Rise, go down, go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. And Peter goes down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, yes, I am him whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God, his good reputation among the nation of the Jews was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to this house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. Ah, you, you, you and I just blow by that. You understand that before this day, there is no way Peter would invite them in. There's no way he had this thing in him, this prejudice. You understand that? And the thing about the Lord and his gospel is he takes our prejudices. And if we're honest, we all have some. And he just shatters them. Boom. There's nobody different in Christ. Rich, poor, this color, that color, uh, color, anything, nothing. They all come down in Christ. There's no room for that in the body of Christ. I mean, here he lodges these people, and the following day they go to Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. That's an amazing thing about Cornelius. Charles Spurgeon said, love this quote. Good, I'll put the onus on you. If you want a great sermon, you better have a great congregation. What does he mean by that? Look down a little later in this chapter, verse 33. Verse 33 So I sent to you immediately, and you've done well to come, Cornelius says. Now, therefore, watch this. We're all present before God. What are we here for? The donuts. We're all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Listen to what James Montgomery Boyce says about this verse. When you go to church, do you want to receive a good message? If so, the best way is to come with a prepared heart. I know that the preacher must be prepared too, but when God prepares the messenger as well as those who are to hear him, then tremendous things happen. Whoa. And some have said that the best way to prepare your heart is to start Saturday night. So here he he comes, and look in verse 25. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him fell down at his feet, worshiped him. But Peter lifted it up. What This is appropriate and says, stand up, I'm just a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many had come together. There's many in the church today who could use a good reading or rereading of verse 26. You're not to worship men or the people of the church. You're to worship Jesus. And we're to be helpers of that journey. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many had come together. And then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. No prejudice. Therefore, I came without objection. As soon as I was sent for, I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, Four days ago, I was fasting into this hour, and at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose name is Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea, and when he comes, he'll speak to you. So I sent you immediately. We're all present to hear the things commanded you by God. You can say, well, okay, I, I, I sort of know this story. Get on with it. And I want you to see something here. God's preparing on both ends. 
And oftentimes, maybe people come to you like they come to me and say, I have the Lord speak to me that you should blank, 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 blank. And one of the things that I try to say is, oh, good, but then I can expect he's going to talk to me about it. How about you? You ever had somebody do that to you? I think the Lord does that. Is there a reason that we shouldn't receive instruction or encouragement for another people and be spiritually cocky or something? No, I'm not saying that. But the Lord will do it. He prepares the hearts of both the messenger and the one who is going to receive the message. When you're sharing the gospel, you're oftentimes thinking, well, this poor person, they need the Lord. Well, guess what? We need the Lord when we're doing it and as we're doing it and as we're living it out. And this is tremendous that the Lord cares enough for a seeking sinner. And this picture shows us this searching Savior. I mean, he seeks these people out through his disciples. I don't exactly know why. But he does. He's called us imperfect, but saved and redeemed people who now have the person and work of the Holy Spirit. I suppose he could have given it over to the angel to just talk to him the gospel, but he didn't. He asked Peter to do it, a man, and he'll ask you and me, and would you be willing for one person or one family to go. And that's what God's calling us to. We see here uh, such a beautiful thing as he prepares both hearts. Then Peter opens his mouth, verse 34, and says, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. You know why? Because the gospel says that none of us, zero, none of us could ever reach God on our own efforts or behalf. We need a savior. It doesn't matter what we look like or how much we earn or where we live. We all need the Savior, Jesus Christ. But in every nation, catch that, this is Peter talking now. God's changed his heart. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Why would somebody work righteous? You could read that and say, well, this is a works-based thing that Peter's preaching. That's not what he's preaching at all. Because if you know the rest of the story, when you surrender your life to Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21, you get the righteousness of God through Christ. So you'll start to do the things that are right. So Paul or Peter is saying that, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is our peace. He is our Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism, which uh, John preached, now or how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Now that's interesting. You say, did the Jews kill Jesus or did the Romans? Well, Peter there just says both. Jews, obviously, the leaders of the Jewish religion, but he says hanging on a tree. Israel, the Jews didn't kill somebody by hanging them on a tree. Who did that? Romans. So they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. I love that one. If you like evidence, it was ingrained in Peter's mind that God showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before God, uh, even those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Why do you suspect that verse is in there? This wasn't Casper the ghost, folks. This was a real person who was resurrected, who ate and drank, and that's what he's saying. And that's how you're going to live. Amazing. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it was he who was ordained by God to judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness. Watch this. Here. Okay. I know. It's almost time to go. I know. Your eyes. Whew. 
But don't miss this. Remember, you're to preach as a disciple repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And watch what Peter does. He traveled all these miles. He listened to the Lord. He opened up his heart to break down the walls of prejudice. He did something that was really uncomfortable to him previously. He let them lodge there. He lodged with them. He went and shared with them. I mean, a Roman centurion, the hated Romans. He went into their house. He talked to their family, all for this little line. Boom. And this is a good lesson for you and me if we're sharing the gospel. Get to this. I know you want to talk about how you're going to be transformed and you're going to put, you know, your little cute little life on Instagram and everything's going to, that's not it. It's this. You're going to receive forgiveness of sins. That's what we're driving people to know and to, to understand is that their chief need is that they need to be forgiven of their sins, men, women, boys, and girls. It's why we have a restless society and they don't even know it people don't even know it it's their sins with guilt and shame and here he drives them to this and listen while he's speaking these words the holy spirit fell upon all those who heard the word and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many as came with peter because the gift of the holy spirit had been poured out on the gentiles also folks there was a Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But now there's a Gentile Pentecost in Acts chapter 10. You catching this? It's as if the Lord is saying now the doors are wide open for anyone, everyone to come and to receive forgiveness of sins have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and have the ministry of the coming upon of the Holy Spirit so that both Jew and Gentile can now go and minister in the power of the Lord. It's so beautiful. And if you read Ephesians 2, you understand that the dividing wall between the two happens. And what a beautiful thing. So Peter answers... Well, they speak with uh, tongues and magnify God. Just a li little quick rabbit trail. Notice again, what is the purpose of tongues? Not to communicate with people, but to pray and praise God. It always is in here if you look for it. Then Peter answered, can anyone forbid water that there should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Just as formerly, like with the Ethiopian eunuch, there was this desire to be baptized, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. The Bible's funny, and here's a place where it's funny. <laughs> Let me tell you why. Just because a Jew and a Gentile, three or four days ago, especially even, even these people who were Christians, they would have never had these words in the Bible. They would have never come together in this way. That they would stay a while with their brothers and sisters. Now, look, we're going to have the uh, musicians come up and we're going to worship one last time. And as they come up, I just want you to know something here. Is that if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus... Today is the day of salvation. You and I, we need forgiveness of sins. But also, maybe there's some people in here who've had a real tough time associating with or being with somebody that looks different than them. And the Bible here says we're all one in Christ. The love we have for each other goes beyond what somebody looks like or where they live or what they make or what car they drive or whatever, or what school they go to. In Christ, all those walls come down. And now we're free, so free, to love people 
Even people who hate us, we're free to love. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come together and we ask that you would do a mighty work in our hearts. We notice that when the Holy Spirit is indwelling and comes upon his people, there's a love for people that surpasses any worldly divisions. Lord, we thank you that we're free to celebrate on any day or every day, to rest in you always. We're thankful that we can eat what we want. Although, Lord, we know we have to be healthy. <laughs> Lord, that you've fulfilled the law and that we surrender our life to you and your righteousness now becomes our righteousness. What a freeing thing. Lord, help us to love people. Help us to bear long with people. Help us to share the gospel and to be available to people. In Jesus' name we pray.